Hi, I'm Faisa Terry. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Calibre Podcast, brought to you by Watchers of Switzerland. Joining our CEO today is the Chief Executive Officer of Audemars Piguet, Francois-Henri Benemayers. Hello everyone and uh, welcome to Calibre Podcasts, uh, the latest in the series of podcasts from Watchers of Switzerland. My name is Brian Duffy, I'm the CEO of the Watchers of Switzerland group and uh, delighted that you could join us. Especially delighted today to be enjoyed, uh, joined by uh, a, a major uh, influence and personality in the world of uh, Swiss watches. That is uh, François-Henri Benemayas. Uh, François, thank you for joining me. You're welcome, sir. François is uh, the CEO of Audemars Piguet. Uh, a little bit of background on, on François. He's been the CEO since uh, 2013, January 2013. He joined AP in uh, 1996, uh, went to the US and spent a lot of his time there in 1999. Uh, it's no surprise to, to learn that the, the business in the US of Audemars is hugely successful and uh, I've no doubt it owes a lot of the success to the period that Francois was there. He's an ex-professional golfer, uh, but he told me over breakfast uh, some, uh, some weeks ago he'd never have made any money uh, playing golf. So. Uh, uh, good for him and good for us that he chose the world of watches. And he was previously, uh, like me, in the fashion industry. And if you've seen any images of uh, Francois, or if you could see him now, you'd understand that he's clearly someone from uh, from the fashion industry. And Audemars Piguet, a wonderful brand. It's uh, still owned by the founding families. Because all the way back to 1875, and from previous podcasts, you'd have heard me talk about how important that period was in the, in the history of uh, Swiss watches and uh, a very uh, important location at that time and now uh, is the Valley de Joux in the, in the Jura Mountains. Le Brassus specifically is where Audemars Piguet uh, is based and has been based since, uh, since the beginning. And the beginning was when Jules Audemars and Edouard Piguet, two very young men, watchmakers, got together and, uh, and formed this uh, amazing business and this amazing brand. So Francois, I know that uh, the continuity of uh, ownership and stability has been a very important element as you've developed and directed this uh, wonderful business. It's actually the most important thing. Since 1875, the brand has stayed in the, in the hands of the families. And when you listen to Jasmine or Olivier Audemar today, they say that they actually, their goal is not to generate more revenue, more profitability, but they want to secure the integrity and the independence of the company to make sure that 50 years from now, 100 years from now, hopefully 500 years from now, Audemars Piguet will still be alive and in the hands of the families. It's, um, I wish I had the uh, bosses and shareholders who felt that way about, uh, about life, but clearly it has added, it's allowed Audemars to, to ride the ups and downs of the of uh, the market over the centuries and become the, the major powerhouse that it is today. If you're looking for a job, we are hiring, you know. All right, and I hear you pay very well, so yeah. that's, uh, <laughs> that's great news. Um, the, uh, when you think of uh, Audemars Piguet, you immediately think about the Royal Oak. Audemars Piguet and Royal Oak are, are almost synonymous, but that's only been since 1972, and we, we obviously will talk about the Royal Oak uh, shortly, but there's been tremendous history and heritage before then of uh, technical excellence and uh, innovation, the first minute repeater, uh, slimmest pocket watch, first skeletonized, the thinnest wristwatch, and so many other uh, accolades. Uh, so how have you managed over 140 years, how's Audemars uh, Piguet managed to preserve this wonderful spirit of uh, technical excellence? Because first of all, in, in our brand's DNA, and I always give us an example that if Jules Audemars and Edouard Piguet were alive today and we're 25 years old, 
they wouldn't be based only out of Switzerland. They would obviously make their watches there, but they would actually travel the world and to, they will chase the growl. They would, their quest would be to, to get to the ultimate, ultimate growl, would be the next watch, which means that as good as they would be at launching a new model, a new timepiece, the following day they would already be thinking about the next one. How could they do better? How could they improve everything? It would be a never stand still story. And that has been, that has impacted actually the, the, the mind of every single watchmaker since then to say that no matter what we do, as good as we think we could be, we always go back to the book. We always go back to the driving range yep. and to hopefully surprise and, and make more people uh, happy about uh, what we do at Audemars Piguet. Yep, I'm happy and hugely excited to see what you're doing next. And, and that spirit goes, goes back to those, uh, those two young men. They're very, very complimentary talents and skills as watchmakers. Actually, when we look at it, it, it was a startup yeah. which, because the, that's, this is the word that we use a lot now. But when you have two young men, two young men that wanted their independence and actually say, you know what, we're going to do even better if we're together. Yep. That was another Mapiguet startup. Yep. And, it, and it, you know what we've termed almost it was a Silicon Valley of its time with young men with pioneering spirit and a great confidence and ambition. I still believe it is the case today. Yep. That's a real Silicon Valley of watchmaking, yep. high-end watchmaking. Yep. And uh, but rolling right forward, 1972, um, it, you know, was a great year to be alive, as I'm sure you can remember. Days of uh, the mini, the mini skirt landing, people on the moon, uh, you name it. It was a. It was a I great was only time. eight years old, uh, Brian. Yep. How old were you then? Uh, Ten years more than that, sadly. <laughs> but, uh, so, so it was a, it was a great time to be eighteen. Yeah, you were enjoying your life much more than I was doing then. Yes. You remember? But life okay. is not so bad now. But yes, as an eight-year-old, I'm sure there was some of these exciting developments that, uh, that that got your attention. But great time for the world, maybe, but not a great time for Swiss watches because it was during the period that uh, that the, the industry describes as, as as the crisis, the quart, the quartz crisis, when 60% of the capacity was lost and a lot of the production that moved to Japan. The industry clearly regrouped and, and, and became what it is today. Uh, but back then, the CEO of Audemars Piguet, your, your, one of your predecessors, had the inspirational thought just before Basel 1972, the Basel Watch Fair, uh, to ask the most famous designer of his generation, uh, I would say Gerald Genta, to come up with something special for, uh, for Audemars. And uh, what did he come up with? Actually, the story is slightly different. Okay. So, so you were right about the quartz crisis, obviously. Now, something that very few people know on the planet is actually that quartz was actually invented by a Swiss person. In Neuchâtel. Yes, exactly. Yep. And can you believe that they, they sold them that technology to Japan yep. that almost made the whole industry crumble? Yep. But in 1971, Gérald Genta was already working with Audemars Piguet. So it was not something that we went to see him. He was already a part okay. of who we were. He was already working on many watches with a with brand. And when he came up with a design, it's not the CEO who asked him to come with something new. It's actually him who came with an idea. Okay. And we've made mistakes actually in the history of the brand, telling sometimes the wrong story until we, I got the chance to meet um, Gérald Genta's wife, Evelyn Genta, who is actually here in London, who told us the real story. And the real story is that Gérald Genta was on the bridge, okay, in front of the lake, Geneva, yep. and saw a guy going with a scaphander, okay, on the water, uh, underwater. Yep. And the way it was then with the helmet, that you would screw the glass of the helmet directly from the yep. face. 
And he says, if a human life can tr be trustful enough to put that on and go underwater, that's what I need for a watch. Yep. And he came up with a design and the design came to the headquarter, to the CEO. And, and there was almost a fight between the families for a year to say, are we taking that chance? Are we not taking the chance? At that time, the watch that we're selling were either in gold, white gold, rose gold, yellow gold, or in platinum, very round shape, square shape, on strap, and very thin. So suddenly, there was a possibility to come with a chrono, with the right oak, sorry, integrated bracelet, case in stainless steel, and the watch would actually sell for the same price of the gold watches. Yep. So that was a huge risk. And after fighting for almost a year and discussing about the risk or not, they decided to do it and introduce the watch at the Basel Fair in 1972. Now, what happened then is all the CEOs with the other companies came and saw us and they were leaving the booth saying, guys, you're great. You have a great design. It's going to be fantastic. And they were leaving the booth right after saying, oh, the Mapiga is dead. It will never that's succeed. Crazy. Yeah. It will never, never be a success. So 40 plus years later now, here yeah. we are with the Royal Oak and it's recognized to be the most iconic, one of the most iconic designs in the watch history. Yeah, for sure. And so the story about him only having 24 hours and working through the night to do it, that's not quite accurate. You know what? We'll never know until we spend even more time with Evelyn Gianta, yep. which we had the chance to meet this morning, and uh, that we said we need the true story on everything because sometimes we make mistakes. People heard things here and there. We need to get the true story. And she said, Francois, next time you're in London, I'm going to show you everything I have here with me. Okay. Well, maybe we could do another podcast right after that. With you anytime you want. So, uh, man, so that, that was such a revolution in the industry, a luxury watch steel with, with, that, with that amazing uh, bezel and appearance and a luxury steel watch for 3,200 francs, as you say, more expensive than some of the gold uh, watches that were around at the time. And a lot of question marks uh, over it, but we know the amazing success that it became. Um, who came up with the name Royal Oak and why? Actually, I don't even have the answer to that, uh, to that uh, question. All right. I don't know. I don't know the answer. That's a good question. First time I'm hearing it, I'm going to check, find okay. out, and come back to you. Okay, great. We'll look, we'll look. But I believe it was after the Royal Oak. There are many ships in, in the, the UK Navy called the Royal Oak that were named after yeah. King Charles II. Yeah, but yep. the, the, this is a true story. Yep. But it was with King Charles. Then yep. some, some ships were made for yep. the First World War. So before the actual Royal Oak watch. Yep. And somehow someone tried to link them together when actually there was nothing there. Yep. I mean, I, I must say, it's, um, when you hear of the history of King Charles and the Royal Oak was a tree that he, he hid behind. You know, it's not exactly Game of Thrones. You no. know, when, you, when you think of your king, he's actually <laughs> hiding behind her. Uh, it reminds me of the, the last uh, pretender to be the, the Scottish king, uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie. Mm -hmm. And we call him a hero, but he escaped from the English dressed as a woman. And escape to the island of sky so i don't find it a very uh, a very bold you know story. what you, you might have just opened the door to game of thrones season nine <laughs> <laughs> so 20 years later or so um another predecessor of your ceo wants to update the uh, uh, the royal oak and uh, what was to become of that when he when he asked a, a young designer again a guy in his early 20s emmanuel guiz he asked him to design an update for a younger audience and he came up with uh, the Royal Oak Offshore, um, quickly nicknamed the Beast. 
because it was significantly bigger. And another, another product that people really had serious doubts about, but again, became a huge, iconic success. Actually, we were the first ones scared again. Yep. Because when we saw the watch, the, the first reaction was, listen, if we manage to sell 100 of those, we're going to be lucky. So we put on the back of the watch the actual logo of the Royal Oak, not even calling it the offshore, yep. just in case if we such a disaster that we would have actually to pull, to pull out and say, no, we're, we're not launching the line. The funny thing is, so launched in 1993, started to barely sell in 1994, and the first time of where we knew that that would be a success, 1995. It took two years to take yep. off, basically. But that was really scary at the beginning because the weight, the size, 42 millimeter in 1993 was huge, yep. huge. People say, who's going to wear that? People don't want those guys. They've got thin wrists. There is no way they're going to wear the, the, the watch this way. Yep. And here we are 25 years later. Yeah, but, but another amazing success. But once again, the designer had difficulty within the company. I think he first came up with it in 1989. It wasn't until 1993 that you actually launched it because of the debate sure. internally again. And uh, something, uh, something I read when I was researching for, the, uh, for this interview was actually Max Busser, apparently. At the time, he was with Jésus uh, uh, and uh, he said his quote was, you'll never sell such a monster. Mm. So uh, he obviously really knew where the, where the market was going. And Since then, Ma Max is, is, is a good friend of the brand. Obviously, he loves Audemars Piguet, respects Audemars Piguet. But when he made that comment uh, uh, many years ago, we had to break one of his legs. Uh, <laughs> but he recovered from it, so we're, we're good now. Okay, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll remember that. But I tell you, it makes me think of something that I know that really typifies the DNA of Audemars Piguet. Is there's, there's nothing that you like to hear more than it can't be done. It's not going to be a success. It we can't thrive with those kind of words. The more you're going to tell us it cannot be done or no, the more we're going to say, you sure? Then we're going to prove you wrong. Yep. And by the way, little, little inch, little, little thing for, for SIHH 2019, we are launching a brand new collection. When I say brand new collection, mm -hmm. there is nothing like it that we've done before. It's new, 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 new. There were no... There was nothing scary about it because we are very confident about what's going to happen. But we heard through the manufacturing of that new line so many times, no, and you will understand why. Okay. And it doesn't start with Royal Oak? It doesn't start with Royal oh, Oak. So this is, this is going to be very exciting for, a, for what will be your last SIHH. It will be our last SIHH, yes. From then, we're going to move out to our own beat and do what we think is right in terms of when do we launch, how do we launch, and yep. for who do we launch watches. Yep, which I honestly have to say makes a lot of sense. Uh, just a last comment on uh, Emmanuel Guit. I also read that one of the original, the 100 that you talked about that hadn't been called offshore yet, that he owned is actually going to be uh, auctioning at uh, Christie's in Geneva in the next couple of weeks. I was not aware of that. Now you're sharing with me, so I'd better give a few phone calls here because I want to make sure that that stays with Audemars Piguet. Okay. That should. Emmanuel was a great designer, brought a lot of great ideas also to the brand. And if he sells his own watch, we'd better get it for our museum. Okay, great. Your wonderful museum in Le Brasseuse. Yes. Yes, of course. Um, so but, uh, the, the collection of, of Offshore, I think, is, is gorgeous. I mean, when you look at it all together, it really comes out the complications 
the colour, your bold, daring colours that you use with uh, some of the modern interp uh, interpretations. A lot of steel still, but a lot of, lot of rose gold. We pretty, pretty much used every single material. We tested new materials as well, carbon, carbon, forged yep. carbon, sorry. We used ceramic as well at the beginning on bezels and then cases. I mean, we used that line to, as a test for so many materials. Yep. And we are not done surprising you. I'm Ryan. sure not. And, a, and another big surprise came along with the Royal Oak concept, mm -hmm. um, celebrating 30 years of the, the, the original Royal Oak in 1972. So concept came out in 2002. Uh, we were chatting earlier. My impression is that a lot of the collection was it open worked and just before we talk about the collection, maybe you could tell me what, what's the difference between open work and skeleton? So there is a huge difference between open work and skeleton because there is actually none. It's just an interpretation and in the way we say it. When we use the word skeleton, it was scaring uh, some people. They, they were scared about the name. What do you mean skeleton? What, 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 and skeletonized yeah. would be very difficult. So open work was much more understandable by people and we chose also that word. Yeah. So you see the two words, but they mean the exact same thing for us. You have to be able to see through a watch to be called a skeleton. If you cannot see through from top to bottom, it's not a skeleton. It's not a, it's not a open work either. Yep. And, and I, I, I love the open work products that you do. We all love about mechanical watches that we can see and understand them working. And the more that you can see of the, the internals, the working of it, the more interesting and exciting the product is and it's a large part of your collection there was always a, a something also in the in the dna of the company where in the mind of of Jules de and edouard piguet we had to make our watches and the parts in the watches as beautiful inside as they would be outside so basically if you could look at every single one of them they would have to be made perfect yep. that remains today this is what we are aim aiming for when we manufacture our watches and and i think Royal Oak concept really epitomizes that when when, uh, when you see the, the the interest in the entire collection, how futuristic it seems, but yet how traditionally beautiful all of the all of the parts are and wonderful statement pieces. But apart from Royal Oak, you have some other great collections like the Millinery Collection. So Millinery Collection started in 1995, and I will always remember the launch because I launched the watch uh, myself, and it was a very very expensive night because we had five three-star chefs cooking in the same kitchen, which was very difficult. We had 150 people and even costed a lot of money. And I remember because I got a letter from my CEO then saying that if I would ever do something like this, I would actually be fired because it was insane. And looking at it, I say I might have made a mistake that night, but I launched the Millenary Collection in 1995. It was launched at the men's collection and then the yeah. women's collection took over as well. And now we have on the, only the watch for women and we'll have a lot of important novelties shown at the SIHH 19. Uh, but the collection today is intended only for women. It's, it's only for women. 39.5 yes. millimeter. Yes. Quite, quite a big dial, but mm -hmm. it's meant exclusively for women, but very, very distinctive with the off-center dial. Really a beautiful watch. And I'm sorry to hear it's only for women, actually. I think it, I think it looks, looks stunning. I've got plenty more things for you, Brian. No worries. I'm sure you do. And Again, I looked at the, uh, the Jules Audemars uh, collection and again, really, really stunning, beautiful, celebrating the founder. So this is where the SIHH 2019 might bring something special. Excited already at, uh, yes. at, at, at the prospect, I'm sure our, our listeners are too. Um, 
you know, I think the biggest challenge, the industry is obviously doing well globally. Now there's been a recovery and, uh, and, uh, and the industry has done well for the last 30, 40 years. In fact, the statistics are, you go back to 1970, there's been an average increase in Swiss watch exports of 6% uh, throughout that entire time. 4% value, 2% volume uh, overall. But I think, that, but it's very different, the performance by brand, as, as you know very, very well. And I think the challenge to everybody is is really pulling on heritage and history and tradition, uh, but being relevant for a, a modern, contemporary, and, and today uh, millennial audience. And I'd, I'd say, honestly, Odebar have clearly cracked that code. Uh, you're very cool, you're very modern, but you celebrate tradition and heritage and excellence. Yeah, because one is not the the goes one doesn't go against the other, and they perfectly can live w with each other. There is there are a lot of questions asked by journalists over the last five years about okay the smartwatches and the traditional watchmakers, and I always give the same answer. It's not either or; it's and, because at the end you can see people that enjoy and wear their smartwatches, and for many many different reasons. But you'll see see a lot of young people who are attracted to true watchmaking. I always use the same, uh, the same example. It's my daughter. Uh, when she turned 22 years ago and she lives in Los Angeles, I said, you know what? I want to buy you a watch for your 20th birthday. She never wore a watch in her life no. before. Never is flick flack, never a swatch, never anything. Yeah. But I said, I don't want this to be a surprise because if you don't to, to have a watch on your wrist, then I want to force you to get one. So you got to come to Switzerland and you got to visit the factory. And then when you're done, you'll tell me if you want the watch or not. Two hours later, she came back to me and said, you know what, Dad, it's the first time I see something that will last. Because this generation of kids, it's the most ADD generation ever. Yes, attention deficit disorder. Because <laughs> since they are young, they look at doing their homework with music on, with Facebook, with iPad, with a phone, with a TV, with everything. I would have died doing this when I was young. Yep. And at the end, this is the generation that throws away things a lot more. So... When she looked at the watch and looked at the watchmakers and, and heard the story say, oh, so I'm going to put this on my wrist and, and, and I can tell the story about why you, you've been doing this for so many years and why it's still working today. Long story short, she flew back to California and through the following six months, four of her friends bought another Marpigay watch mm -hmm. just because of the story she shared. So it means that whether you're 15 years old, 20, 30, 50, or 75 years old, there is always be a part in your brain that could be touched by craft, mm. exclusivity, and the time it takes to do things right. So which, which makes me say that I, I look at a bright future for the, for the watch industry. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And, and uh, I have four kids, and uh, they, they all now have beautiful watches, and they all have a huge interest. In Do the, they have Audemars Piguet, Brian? Um, they, they, they are not able to afford Audemars Piguet yet, but someday in their life when they're successful. Do you want me to call your boss right now to increase your, <laughs> your salary, maybe? That, that would be really helpful. Okay, I'm going to do and, that uh, next. It wouldn't necessarily be passed on to my kids, but nevertheless, that would be really helpful. <laughs> you know, but uh, yes, if you can talk directly to a few people, I have no question that, uh, that, that you could sell them more watches, but you've got to appeal to a big, broad audience, and I think at Audemars, you do that superbly well. Um, I wonder if your time in the U.S. being really close to the development of modern culture in many ways has maybe even helped bring that uh, uh, that focus. I mean, I, I've seen some of what you've done with, with Jay Z and and LeBron James and uh, you know a lot of Hollywoods, uh, a lot of athletes. So there's been clearly a, a great uh, 
endorsement and support of uh, Audubon. I'm sure you've been very influential in all that. We, we built the, the success of the brand together, but at the end, there was never something where you could say, okay, because that name, that famous name is going to wear the brand, it's going to be enough. Because no matter what we did, there was also that notion of they have to own the fact that they love it for what it is and not for what it could look like. So we never entered deals where the person didn't know much about the brand or didn't want to know about, about Odemar. And since in the DNA of the company, we've got that sort of thrive for never standing still, being always different, be forward thinking, it did attract a lot of different people. And on, 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 on the relationship that we created together, it was then genuine, authentic. The client could relate and say, I see where and why you guys have done this together, which is why I'm going to buy and go into your story. Yep. That remains true to today, today's world. So every time we use ambassadors, it's not like, oh, I'm going to pay you X amount of money a year. And you say that Audemars Piguet is the best watch brand in the world because that never works. They have to endorse. They have to make sure they love it and they love the watches for what they are, not for the money they're going to make because at the end, the money they make, they are making when they make the money out of it is almost irrelevant. So what matters is the love, again, of the craft, of the exclusivity and of the brand's DNA, which is where we think tomorrow. Yep, which honestly I'd give you great credit for get it, getting that magic mix right. It has to be real, there has to be love of the product and the character that you're using has to relate to the DNA and it, it's done fantastically well. Um, so you're not going to tell us how you're going to break the rules next at the SIHH? Um, I'm not going to tell you, I'm inviting you to come and see us at the SIHH as always. S knowing it's the last year, it's going to be a year of celebration. Yes. Trust me on that very much look forward to so when are you going to increase your production beyond the 40,000 you know there's much more of a demand out there for your product we will start to increase but we cannot increase drastically it's impossible because we need new building facilities it takes four to five years to put them together so it's a matter of saying we're going to grow we're going to grow the, the, the production but gradually so the next step will be 42,000 then 43,000, we cannot go from 40 to 45,000 in one night. It's impossible mm. because we need the train watchmakers, the skilled people. We need more, more space to do everything. And right now we are a thousand people in Switzerland. We know that there is a need to hire potentially in the years to come two to 300 people more. They don't fall from the sky. Yep. So it's going to take some time. And you know, you have a very clear vision for where you're going with Odemar for the Swiss watch industry overall. What, what do you see as the future? I'm going to use numbers, very simple. We are 8 billion living souls on the planet. And when people talk about the wealthiest people on the planet, they use the 1%. So 1% of 8 billion is 80 million. You know what? I'm going to cut this 80 million by four. So I'm going to use a 0.25% of the worldwide population. That's 20 million people. Last year, all the watch, the high-end watch companies, all together, we didn't make more than 600,000 watches, mm. 600,000 watches, 20 million potential clients. So what I'm saying is I cannot look at the, the glass half empty. I want to look at the glass half full because every day, if we manage to be exposed to the right pair of eyes, to the, to the true stories of the watchmaking story and history, then we got to, we got to, we got to convince people that it's a great, great field and they, they should join us. So, I do believe that it's only a bright future ahead and we have not seen the best yet. Yep. You know, I 
100 percent uh, agree with that there, there's not enough of what you do and what some other brands do in the world today there's never been such a demand waiting lists have never been so long so I, I completely agree with your analysis I, I think it's so well established now the industry it stands for so many unique characteristics there's no challenge from technology there's no challenge from anywhere else in the world and there's an increasing demand that's there it's a you have to be it's careful to thing. something with me, Brian, because if we do agree like this all day long, then you're going to end up singing together. You understand that? You know, I could look forward to that as long as I get to choose a song. <laughs> but as long as we find a guitar somewhere and then we'll, uh, we'll really do it properly. Okay. But, you know, finally, I've, I, I've, uh, I love uh, Odmar. Uh, I thought I knew it well, but I obviously did a bit of research over this last, uh, last week or so in anticipation of this very uh, special interview. And when I think of Odemar to me now, the, the words that come out are, you know, technical excellence, innovation, rule breaker uh, for sure, complications, uh, open work, iconic, futuristic, cool, not just the CEO, but uh, uh, but the brand. Uh, but something I didn't expect to find, I thought it was lovely, the, the story I read, that uh, you worked with uh, Arnold uh, Schwarzenegger in his uh, foundation, the After School uh, All-Star Foundation, raised a million dollars with him. And uh, you said it was the thing you were most proud of in the, in the Odemar PGA. So I, I would add to my adjectives, uh, kind-hearted uh, as, a, as a company, and that, that clearly comes from the CEO. No, thank you. But that was, that was actually a funny story with Arnold Schwarzenegger, because the first time we actually met, we had difficulties to understand each other because of our very thick accents. With the Austrian accent and the French accent, imagine the discussion. And we were in, uh, at his restaurant in, uh, in Malibu, and uh, we are talking about him just buying watches for himself, not doing anything special. Yep. And I said, but I think that you are, you are shooting a new movie called End of Days, right? He said, yes. And um, <laughs> what about if I could make a watch that you could wear in the movie and then we would make a special edition and raise money for After School All Star? Uh, it was your idea. Yes, and he said, oh, I love good. this, let's do it. <laughs> and we started and actually we made a special edition of End of Days, 300 watches for the world, raised over a million. At that time it was 2000. To raise a million yep. with watches in 2000, that, that was serious money. And that started and we made with him then seven other watches. After that and raised over 20 million of the course of our relationship together. Yeah. which is why we kept we're still close friends yep. i got to train with him <laughs> in los angeles uh what it was six months ago we went to the gym together and i can tell you that he's 73 years old and still in great shape yeah i mean he, he seems a great guy all around from from everything i've ever seen of his life but that, that's a wonderful story mm. and the whole thing is has been wonderful uh francois what a, a great uh, pleasure it's been to, to talk to you here and thank you very much for your time thank you brian so no singing today huh? You want to give it a shot? Yes, so, but, but, but you have to follow my lead. So, uh, <laughs> so let's, see, let's see how it looks. And now the end, end is, is near. And, and so, so I face the, the final, final curtain. curtain. You see? My friend, I said it clear. I stayed my case. Of which I'm certain. Shall we quit there? <laughs> That's good enough. Thank you, Francois. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, then please do subscribe and review on Apple Podcasts.